on Thursday, the title basically of this was Think and Do, Mind Your P's and Q's. This is part two of that. Think and Do, Mind Your P's and Q's. In part because the previous psalm was a psalm that has been associated with one of ascent. It's bringing to the mind of the reader and to the remembrance of the people that there's a God that we look up to and there's a God that we will travel on behalf of. So whenever you went to Jerusalem, it was a place you went up to. Now, I've been to Jerusalem, so I understand portions of that, but it's not per se in the immediate intimate surroundings there because you know it's in a city spot and so there were staircases that we would ascend to but it means that in the elevation of the land it is considered an ascent and the temple mount is considered an ascent that you make in those older years before the temple came down was decimated it was a place that people went they ascended to the mount of the lord to worship God. This, on the contrast, would be a descent, but it's not God who has found himself in descent. It's the people of God who have found themselves in descent. Where once there was motivation and inspiration to work out their salvation and fear and trembling, to get a workout. If you go to Israel, especially with Chrissy, you will get a workout. But to take no longer initiative in what at one time you did with zeal and childlike enthusiasm. So the descent comes because it's one of the things that plagues humanity. A devotional commitment to God that is filled with praise and thanksgiving and becomes little by little, event by event, crises by unsubtle crises, a time in which we again tuck in and we remove ourselves from the passion that once was a high motivation for us. We allow the influence of politics, of economics, of personal disappointments and frustrations to overwhelm us more than the God who has overwhelmingly done good for us. So that's an important kind of overlay to where this goes. In the remaining verses, which in Psalm 106 closes at 48, we had only made it through just about the first five verses. We want to now enter into what this says about every one of us and vulnerabilities. Just like them, we're just as vulnerable. It's not to discourage us, though. And the reason for that is that when the Lord has, from his people, agreeability in truth and doctrine, we're able to allow that to meet up if you would, on the, the path that we're on. Meetups are one of those terms now used to say collectively a group or several people are going to intentionally find themselves together at some point, some place in time. Well, God wants to meet up with his people again. 
He knows exactly the direction that we once were headed. He knows exactly the direction that he's going to take us. But in what would be called paths that become divergent, they, they move or track away, he wants to bring those back in. So the way and means by which he does that is he says, I want to bring some principles back into your life, to your understanding that you can find agreement with. So in verses 1 through 3, the discipline we talked about of recognizing we have a God to praise becomes for us a commitment we need to reestablish. That's why we open with praise and worship. He's a God worthy to be praised. And it actually is a transaction that does something very good for us. It just changes our mind and our attitude. It really does. Even if a string breaks, even if a note is sung wrong, even if there seems to be a gaffe, because we are coming before God, he does something with our disposition, because that's what he does. He takes the shortcomings, and he makes it very becoming of himself to change ourselves. The other area that we looked at was it was a personal plea. The writer of this is pleading on behalf of himself, and he's doing so before God, which again is an important reminder to us as well. We praise God, and then we do not hesitate to plea on behalf of God. One, what his interests are for others in our life and what his interest is for me in my life, the stuff that I'm going through, a plea. Nothing wrong with that. And in fact, sometimes we feel, well, God will never listen to me because I'm in this mess because of me messing up. So that's not true. We've already said that it's very easy to obviously come back into his presence. We just desire to do it, and he's there. Isaiah 1, I believe 18, says that he desires that we reason together with him. He likes that. 6 through 39, though, is where we enter into what has been the record of failure. Let's take a look at some of these things right now, see if we can move through them with rejoicing and praise, not for what they represent, but for what God has represented himself to be in spite of them. So the first one, 7 through 12, I'm going to catch you up by reading verses 1 through 5. Oh, give praise to the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. And it says, who can uh, utter the mighty acts of the Lord? Who can declare all his praise? Blessed are those who keep justice and he who does righteousness at all times. Verse 4, remember me, O Lord, with your favor. You have towards your people. O visit me with your salvation, that I may see the benefit of your chosen ones, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance. Just on these verses, some people actually took time to share with me that they had saving moments with the Lord this week on what they were spared from. They attributed that as a salvation moment, being saved, what we would also say, mercy of God, and what could have been a crisis. So he does that. He still is there to do that. In verse 6, this is where we move into the specifics of not the ascent, but the descent. 
And it seems to start with what can be categorized with this one word, unbelief. Verse 6, the writer moves us into this by declaring, we have sinned with our fathers. We have committed iniquity. He concludes in that verse, we have sinned. Not simply like our fathers, but with our fathers. In other words, we've gotten to used to compartmentalizing ourselves, saying, well, this is what I did, and that's what they did, and that's who they were, and this is who I am. But this is actually enjoining himself with those who have preceded him as a nation, as a people, persons, relationship. And that's important to do. We are not different from those who have erred before us. We're not simply like them. We're with them. God made a provision to redeem all of us because all of us from the time of Genesis, the fall, became linked with Adam and Eve, not just like them. In many ways, we are not at all like them. They were perfect in every single way before electing to sin against God. But because of the plan of God to put us with himself in Christ Jesus, we had to come from someplace, and that was with Adam. Jesus is noted as the second Adam, but he's the greatest. What? He's the Redeemer. He is the Redeemer. And he is the one that precisely because of sin came to save us from sin. The consequences rendered, rightfully so, as death. The consequence of, of sin is death. The free gift of God, though, is eternal life. The identity not to be cloistered separately from others because of who they are and they're way, way worse than what, you know, I'm over here, but it's much less, way worse Nope, we're all knitted together with, with, with. Just as together today, we're knitted together in the spirit, in unity, prayerfully feeling as though, man, I've been forgiven today. I don't know how that worked out because I thought I had to work really hard at getting back into God's grace. No, the hardest work you had to do is cross the threshold. That was it. He has done the rest. We'll continue to do the rest. Our fathers in Egypt taking us back historically. And remember the theme right now is unbelief. Do any of you have unbelief? It has a tricky way to uh, allow us, I suppose, to evaluate. Yeah, that's not me, I believe. But unbelief is tricky. It can have a very subtle suggestion to it. You know, I believe God, therefore I'm not an unbelief. But God may be speaking a specific word in which, in fact, only a component part of what he desires for you to actually, without any reservation, any hesitation, believe. It may depend on what you would say is the mountain of your problem, your situation. But there are people today that need to believe in their marriages. They need to believe in the rearing of their children. They need to believe in God's intent for a country that would desire to honor him as God of all nations. But in particular, we have that need to believe that God does desire to reign over all nations, all countries. And we have a country worthy 
of being able to say, come on, church, let's lift up our prayers to God. Let's plead to the Lord. It has nothing to do with, per se, the man in place, although the placement of the man has everything to do with how that man worships the Lord or how he stands for the principles or she stands for the principles in the word of God. We have currently, not by necessarily the church, but an unbelieving nation. We're holding on just by tendrils. Tendrils are what secure vines to that which can hold it up so it can grab the sunlight. But a tendril can also be peeled away. And that's what slowly has begun to happen when you consider the youthfulness of our nation. It's only one of many things we could look at. But personally, there may be unbelief. So you have to ask yourself, is there in any way an unbelief that I'm exercising right now in my walk with the Lord? Because of how long it's been since I've seen a miraculous work of God or how hard it is. Unbelief. Our fathers in Egypt did not understand your wonders. So here's how you help with your unbelief. You go out at night, you rise up early in the morning, and you take a look up into the heavens. Yeah, I have. Lately, it's been just smoke and fog. Okay, marvel at smoke and fog. You have not been consumed by God in righteous anger. You've been saved in spite of that through Jesus Christ. Okay, you got me there. But what's the next one? The fog. You have clarity of mind where that's being used as an excuse in these days. You know, fog was one of the things that God brought literally to the advantage several occasions, but in U.S. history, when the war could have been lost at a time in which one of the greatest battles at Washington engaged the British enemy is, he was protected by a cloak of fog, able to cross the Delaware without being seen. To some degree, not qualifying it as the same, but God protected his people with a cloud. To the Egyptians, a mysterious fog. It shielded them, umbrellaed them. There was also a pillar of fire, not a fog at all. But what I'm saying is the wonders of God it's time to take an amazing retrospective or present tense current evaluation of the wonders of God. You were born, do you know that that's a wonder of God? You're living right now, that's a wonder of God. It's a wonder that no matter where you are in your life right now, you do not have to question where you're going. As a believer, it's secured. But you don't also have to be wondering about how where you're at right now works out because God can cause you to marvel and to take a new, fresh look at what he's doing for you. Remember last week's teaching was the correction of God for you. It's for us. So these historically marked right now are accounts in which they stopped believing, they had unbelief, and it seems to be in this area where they no longer considered in wonder the things that God had done. They did not remember the multitude 
of your mercies. You've been spared from something, very likely what you deserved, and a decision you made could have been ignorance, could have been arrogance, but this associates it with not remembering the mercies of God, but rebelled by the sea, and in this case it says the Red Sea. So we know who was the one that led the children of Israel out of bondage, Egypt, but can you imagine what that really would have been like to have been brought back to a land that he had to vacate in his 40s to return in his 80s and to have a people that were opposed to his qualifications? In fact, many had forgotten exactly how much influence he had had at what would be considered a vital time in his life in his 40s. And so with that, this Red Sea experience, as you recall, was when there was release from Egypt and the predicament now of how do we escape those who are coming on our heels with now this huge ocean before us. They had no answer. Enemies on the backside, mountainous valleys as well, hedging them in and a seed that would not yield to them whatsoever. What did they have to do? They had to wait upon the Lord. And it was Moses, ultimately, that heard the voice of God and repeated what God has said, stand and behold, the salvation of the Lord. Stand and behold. So for us, at times, like them, we can be confronted with what seems to be now look what God's done. He promised me this. He brought us this far, me this far, and now there's no way out. This has got to be a sorrowful story in the chapter of my life. But the thing is that God gets to turn the page. He's the one that writes the entire script. And so I think that it's important, as they did not tend to that historically, it led to, again, a descent, a means by which they severed that wonderful connection they had with God. And as a result of that, we see that it's moving in still a direction that doesn't have for them a turnaround point. They could have been turned around. It just doesn't seem to be something they apprehended. Nevertheless, he saved them for his name's sake. That's a wonder. That's a wonder, that he might make his mighty power known. Verse 9, he rebuked the Red Sea also, and it dried up, so he led them through the depths as through the wilderness. He saved them from the hand of him who had hated them and redeemed them from the hand of the enemy. The waters covered their enemies. See, the story that we paused at unfolds right now in what he did. And it's a fabulous story, by the way. An incredible work of God that could not have been achieved by anything clever to that many people to save them. God was completely a hedge of protection for them. There was not one of them left, the Egyptians, the enemy, not one of them left. And then, notice this, they believed his words and they sang his praise. Some have said, 
why didn't they believe him to begin with and sing his praise beforehand? You probably have heard that. Why does it always take an insurmountable crisis before we are those who, after he solves the problem, say, ah, now he's worthy to be believed. Yes, I'm going to sing a song to God. I think on either side of it, it's a good thing, but I'm wondering how much better we could do if in the insurmountable, the impassable, the devastating, if we said, this is what I'm going to do, and it appears to others foolishness, but this is what I'm going to do. I am going to right now believe God, and I'm also going to sing praise to the Lord. And if I look like a fool doing it, so be it. But I want to be found faithful in doing it so that he may find exaltation in my dilemma. In my dilemma. Not my failure in the crisis, but in my dilemma, he will have exaltation. I like what that inspires me to consider. In verses 13 through 15, this is discontentment that's being voiced really up to verse 16. They soon forgot his works, right? So we're moving into the next thing. They soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel. We mess up all the time there, don't we? We love counsel, but it says his counsel. They didn't wait for it. And then notice this. They lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and they tested God in the desert and gave them, and he gave them their request. He sent leanness in, it says, to their soul. Leanness into their soul. So flashback with me to Numbers 11. It's familiar. I know that you're aware of it. But this is that occasion being penned right now. In verse 11, it says the people complained. When we complain, believe it or not, even if we feel justified, it's an expression of discontentment. It doesn't matter what it is. So we're in a dilemma, right? Because we can always find something to complain about. And we can validate it. Much of the mechanics of industry is actually evaluating what you'd call the quality control. And most of us would say, that's a tough one, because as soon as I want to have control over the quality, it all gets moved. Well, if you're studying with Chuck Missler, he'll tell you you're actually seeing God prove himself in what all of a sudden moves out of your ability to keep things in orderly state. It's entropy. Everything tends towards a state of disorder. So as much as you try to order your life, it will tend towards disorder. What's going to be your excuse then? Are you going to say, yeah, God, if you didn't put that law into the universe in play, what I would have in spot would stay at the spot. And now all I'm seeing are spots. That's a janitorial kind of humor. There's always a mess to clean up. But what if God says, yeah, you guys are a mess and I'm tired of cleaning up after you. So the point being made here is that discontentment links itself in a way that the Lord would say also had its start in unbelief. It seems to always just link itself to something before 
that we didn't get quite right. Now, the mixed multitude in verse 4 is where you're going to pick it up. Who were among them, that means those who came out as well with the Jews, some did, mixed multitude, a divided religious system, a divided political perspective, a divided domestic, you know, order. We can associate many things to this, a mixed multitude who were among them yielded to intense cravings. So the children of Israel also wept again and said, who will give us meat to you? I was thinking when I first read this, oh, they're crying out to God. Look at that. Their hearts are broken. Actually, what it means as you review it is that when the proposal was that, look at what God's doing to you. Look at what he's given you. They're not crying out to God. They're crying out and saying, Lord, we're complaining. These guys are right in what they're thinking about you and what they're saying about you. That's the idea. So one of the things we need to be challenged by is when things are being said concerning God that are not anchored in the word, not right, and especially in opposition to being content, we're moving in a direction that creates a problem in our life and our relationship with the Lord. It closes over here, you're going to zip over to verse 34, and it says this, because they were buried, because there they buried the people who had yielded to cravings, that's the part that I just want to do. The place is named because it says they buried the people who had yielded to cravings. Yeah, I didn't go through all of this. I'm simply saying it seems to have started out with unbelief, it moves into discontentment. It tells us why they were discontented. They lusted after the things that God had no intention of wanting to give them. Funny story, I think. It's personal, so I'll share it. A friend of mine came over last night spontaneously. Pastor friend of mine. <laughs> I can't necessarily... See if he's here. I have trouble focusing. <laughs> Where is he hiding? <laughs> okay, there you are, Carl. So the car rolls in, and I go out to greet him, and he came as Melchizedek, the priest of Salem, big boxes in his hand, oh, gifts he bore. And I greeted him, and it was very awkward because these big boxes were in the way of the handshake and of the big embrace. But I did notice something about the box. It was a brilliant yellow. And the other thing I noticed about the box is it had a label. You know where I'm going, right? The theme's kind of telling you where I'm going. The box, delivered by a type Melchizedek, a priest says, you deserve a donut. Yum. Okay, so that's four weeks ago. And of course, I said, I do. I do. So they got brought into the house. It's just the strangest thing. Two boxes. I don't remember. Oh, the other was a pie. But that didn't touch me like the donuts did. The donuts had scripture on it. You deserve a donut. Yum. That was doctrine. 
And so I set it on the sink away from me, and from the sink, though, it got moved over to the table. I think I did that one, too. Before it was high enough where I really had to work kind of to let it tease me, but when it was on the table, it really teased me. I just, I wanted to look. I just popped it open. And they were stacked donuts, and it wasn't just one type. It was all different kinds, and so this is all I'm sharing with you, okay? So I went keto a couple of weeks ago. Okay, I'll leave it rest there. You know what it means. But I've been staying on it good and been rewarded. Oh, not as fast as I wanted to, but you'll probably see why. So boxes popped open, and then I'm making sure that there's enough for everybody coming to the college study that night. So the cinnamon roll, and I thought, cinnamon? Well, that's a great spice. I heard that that takes care of my blood pressure. And so I just took an edge of the cinnamon roll off, thinking, totally nailing the blood pressure now. I was offering it to somebody else, said, you're on keto. I said, this is totally keto. There's cinnamon there. And that frosting, I'm telling you, that's the fat of the cow. That's not what you think. And I, I'm confident it has stevia in it. It's totally, those are carbs in there. I got carbs in here, carburetors, got a burns. At any rate, you know, it didn't work. And the edge that I started on, I then was intrigued how it unrolled just before my eyes. It just continued to unroll until it was in me. So then Carl and I broke to have some fellowship. And I remember that Christy had hauled in, what was it, five pounds of meat? French dip, roast beef. It was just cut exactly the way that it needed to be cut. So you already know, I dissent. I digress because I moved into dissent. But I felt, well, certainly the roast beef will remedy perhaps the carbs that I've inherited. And so I started to get a little bit testy because Carl and I had a lot of conversation, but I knew that there was beef in the refrigerator. So, hey, Carl, do you want a French dip sandwich? No, just a little bit. Okay, I'll just make you a little bit. And so I moved from the cinnamon roll about an hour later to making him a great French dip sandwich. And so with beef and Cinnabon in my belly, I said, Lord, I yielded to intense cravings. You brought this to my attention like three weeks ago, Dairy Queen and a donut shop in Coos Bay. Or it wasn't Coos Bay. Charleston. I probably got Charleston. My goodness. <laughs> You keeper of the log of sin. <laughs> so you may say, what is this? So what I'm saying is, I did choose to do what I'm humorously sharing with you. And I wanted to share that with you because when I was in Charleston, apparently, I was weak, okay? I was weak. Here in my driveway, I was strong. Do you see? I can be weak and fail in unbelief and in discontentment. I can be strong and fail in unbelief 
and discontentment. And that generally is the way that we find ourselves vulnerable, indecent, declining. Now, I believe that honestly, it's of no consequence. It's a picture simply saying we have vulnerabilities. How is it that we avoid them if indeed they are truly spiritual? And I do believe there's a spiritual picture in there that we can crave things that God would say to us will ultimately harm us. So it is true that if I ate all of the donuts in the box, I probably would not be here today. But it just tells me that there's a vulnerability no matter who you are, where you are, even how perhaps consistent you are with the Lord. And simply I wanted to share that. It's no fault of Carl's. He came as an ambassador. It's what I thought of him as an ambassador. That's for me. And it's from God. And I'm going to bless the Lord. And I did give thanks. But the principle was is how easy I was able to say, that's for me. This is of the Lord. That being said is that when we look back here, we see that this was a true historical moment in which what happened is that discontentment led to complaining. It can also be that complaining leads to discontentment. The stop point is simply this. If we complain, let's realize it can move us into discontentment. Let's also understand that if you are one who is discontent with where you're at, you then must know that complaining will be more evident to others through you. That can happen. And so what you want to say is, I'm not going to say that anymore, about what it is other than what I have that God has given to me. I'm not going to say that anymore. I'm going to withhold. I'm going to go back to the beginning. I'm going to begin praising the Lord for his wonders. I'm going to begin singing songs to him, to marvel at him. That was the point that I was trying simply to make, hopefully in a humorous way. But that, you know, I don't doubt that in terms of the things that test me right now, and in particular what I've tried to humor you in, it shows also a personality, perhaps dysfunction in me. So we have to be those that say, okay, well, this word is teaching us about such and I don't want to ultimately be finding out that in what I could have learned so easily in a practical little faux pas was really something that the Lord was saying lends itself to something much bigger. That's the point that I'm making. And so in this two points that were made, unbelief, discontentment, that's what, Rome, that's what Numbers 11 captures in both the fourth and 34th one. And because of where we're at right now, and because of where I think as well we need to leave it, there are other points to follow. This will be a continuance. I did want to say this. I've used this before. It's a quote from C.S. Lewis. And you may say, what's the relevancy of this quote to where we're at right now? Because in these latter days, the love of God is going to grow cold. How could that be? because lawlessness is abounding and the disciplines that once we valued 
in finding ourselves in the necessity of seeking God has diminished. There's been something else to go after, something else to yield to, something less than who God is. And so this is, I think, a very important word from C.S. Lewis. I've used it in a couple of weddings, but I, I wanted to say that examine yourself and for me too, is my love for the Lord burning as intensely as it once was when I set out in faith to follow him wherever he would lead? Or has it diminished? Are there things about <laughs> this little light of mine that I want to have it shine and all of a sudden it's turning twinkly and I'm going, but God loves little twinklies. He's made stars. I don't even doubt that this is a perfect illustration. Oh, I'm enamored by the twinkling of the stars. Well, actually, stars really aren't twinkling. That's a, an illusion from our perspective. They send a beam of light. So maybe some of us are enamored by the twinkling stars when God says, where's that little light of mine? Are you going to let it shine? And we go, but I love twinkle, twinkle little star, this is who I am and this is where I are. I can write songs. That one probably won't make a hit. So I'm concluding here. Let me see if I can capture it for you because I do think this has so much to do with love. There is no safe investment. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. C.S. Lewis was a theologian and a great writer. The only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and what may perturb you about love is hell. Or I might say, and what may perturb you about God is hell. There is a perturbment against God. There is a perturbment against the church. There is a fear there is love that's growing cold. That's a gift from God. It's a revival of the Spirit. And the Lord can reignite that flame. He's asked us to keep full the reservoir. He's asked us to trim the wick. And that's what we need to do.